You're listening to episode 381 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Hey, Max, we had a great episode last week. Um, if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to episode 380. It was a great conversation. We did have a good one. But we have some good stories tonight. We do. Uh, topics for tonight are first responder tactical beyond visual line of sight, TBville loss, 100,000 wing deliveries in Australia, using Starlink for military maritime intelligence drones, a DJI Maverick 3 leaked, measuring the wind for UAM safety, a drone service company meets a UAV maintenance provider, and the history of drones in Southeast Asia, and maybe after a while, a crocodile. Hmm, yeah. So, Max, should we get started? David, let's get started. Well, the first story comes from TechCrunch.com. Paladin publicly launches Nighthawk, a first responder drone for cities. Paladin has unveiled its Nighthawk and Watchtower products for the first responders. The startup is built on autonomous systems for cities that can be deployed to 911 calls with a 90-second response time and provide instant situational awareness. It's custom drone hardware and software. Uh, they uh, originally used off-the-shelf drones, but Paladin decided that they needed to uh, go with purpose-built systems because they offered greater automation. So the Nighthawk drone is, as I said, it's custom-made. It has a 10x zoom optical camera as well as a thermal camera, and it can provide video feeds day and night, and it's got a 55-minute flight time. Now, that's coupled with their Watchtower software. And that's available as an app. It places a pin on a map to direct the drone. On-site video feeds display in the app as well as the 911 center's existing computer-aided dispatch systems. So in other words, the 911 dispatcher pins a pin or a location on a map and the drone flies to that location, which is pretty impressive. This is more than just an idea. This is actually something that's been in use. Uh, the company reports that since 2018, they've responded to about 1,600 emergencies in Texas and Ohio. Now, as I was reading this, I'm thinking about, hmm, you know, they must have a waiver or something, a BV loss waiver. And it turns out that there's a, a category that just fits perfectly for first responders. And it is not surprisingly called the First Responder Tactical Beyond Visual Line of Sight Operating Waiver, or TB. Let's see, you, you get an extra letter in there. You got to think about how you say this. So instead of BV loss, this is TBV loss, I guess. Yeah, we keep adding letters and it gets harder and harder to pronounce. I know. These temporary BV loss flights are flown to reduce risk of the first responders and ensure the safety of the communities they serve. The waiver has specific conditions and requirements. It does, quite a few of them. So in order to qualify for this waiver, the first responder must already be flying under a valid Part 91 Certificate of Authorization, COA, and 
temporary BV loss is only to be used in an extreme emergency situation to safeguard human life. But also the pilot in command must return to visual line of sight operations as soon as practical or upon the conclusion of the extreme emergency situation. It really is a temporary waiver. Yes. You have it for as short a time as possible. And it it makes sense to me anyway. I mean, you've got uh, first responders here. Oftentimes it's a critical situation and having a, a drone available to get there quickly and provide some situational awareness or assessment or whatever, um, it, it, it'll just save lives. So I'm, I'm really happy that there is this uh, waiver and a process to obtain it. There are some restrictions in terms of distances. Uh, the pilot in command must not operate any higher than 50 feet above or greater than 400 feet laterally of the nearest obstacle while operating this temporary BV loss. The 50 feet above an obstacle cannot exceed the 400 feet above ground level. That's a hard ceiling. And the UAS must remain within 1,500 feet of the pilot in command. The UAS can operate during an extreme emergency to safeguard human life. Um, the TBV, TB, uh, boy, is this hard. It is, it is kind of. Um, the BV laws in controlled airspace, as long as they don't exceed the UAS facility map altitude values, which is a hard ceiling for these operations, which makes sense. The FAA doesn't want you going up into the airspace. Operations at night, including operations at night that are in controlled airspace below the UAS facility map altitude values are allowed provided you abide by the standard provision for night small UAS operations in your COA. So there's a lot of rules, but it's still a really helpful. In this document that we'll link to in the show notes, uh, it describes how you apply for this waiver. It it uh, details the process for applying. And again, that's the first responder tactical beyond visual line of sight waiver. And Max, I'm kind of glad we found this because I'm sure there are people who listen to this didn't even know this existed, you know, as part of their COA. So, I mean, definitely if you're in a first responder res- responsibility, you might want to look into this. Yeah, absolutely. 100,000 drone deliveries, Max. Do you believe that? It is kind of hard to believe. So that's what Wing has uh, flown, or that's the number that Wing has flown in Logan, Australia. Now, uh, Logan is a city about 300,000 people, and uh, the volume is just really maybe a surprising, maybe not, but uh, some statistics are available in the first week of August alone this year. Customers placed 4,500 orders, which equates to one order every 30 seconds during the delivery window. So you might ask, what are they delivering? Well, it's a very highly caffeinated system. They delivered 10,000 cups of coffee, 1,700 children's snack packs, 1,200 hot chooks or roasted chicken, 2,700 sushi rolls, and 1,000 loaves of bread. That's a lot of food. It's kind of a limited 
selection of items, but, um, you know, that's uh, what you'd expect, I think, given some of the constraints. But Wing expects that uh, they're going to expand this service to other markets in the coming months. In fact, the uh, Wing comms head, Jonathan Bass, said, I think we'll expand quite a bit. He says, I think we'll launch new services in Australia, Finland, and the United States in the next six months. The capabilities of the technology are probably ahead of the regulatory permissions right now. Uh, Yes, I I think so. So let's talk about the drones. And they have a six-mile radius, and the package resembles a Happy Meal. Um, The weight is primarily the limitation up to three pounds, which is not surprising. They're flying between 100 and 150 feet. At the destination, they lower to about 23 feet, and then a tether lowers the package to the ground. I was curious on how they are getting the food to the ground. And that I guess that seems to be the one thing that everybody seems to be settling on is hovering and dropping a rope down. And, of course, we've over the years speculated about some of the advantages and disadvantages of the you know, final delivery method. And, you know, we've, I think we've made cracks about the neighborhood dog going after the uh, the box as it's lowered, things like that. But I guess I would say that uh, after 100,000 deliveries, well, I think they have enough experience to, enough data to tell them um, that uh, apparently this method is, is a good one and is viable. So, um, I mean, it's a good test for the, the tether delivery approach. And we'll, we'll see what happens when they, if they move to Finland and here in the United States. Um, but it does sound like they're expecting regulatory issues. So I guess we'll have to keep watching. Always the constraint. So from the Center for International Maritime Security, drones and startling combining satellite constellations with unmanned Navy ships. The U.S. Navy is facing an aging fleet of transport ships and personnel shortages. So what do they want to do? They want to make a remotely piloted ship, an RPS. Or an autonomous uh, vessel. And uh, But apparently the situation is so bad that, the, according to this article, the Navy says that if there was to be a large-scale conflict, that it wouldn't even be able to defend maritime supply lines. So the Navy has been playing, not playing with, the Navy has been uh, looking at autonomous maritime vessels. Uh, In the article, they are, I guess, maybe a little critical in that the Navy seems to be focused on small, rapid response ships rather than on, you know, larger cargo kinds of vessels. To this point, David, I'm wondering, you know, okay, so this is about autonomous ships. Okay, maybe there's some relationship But then we switch over to drones. So a maritime intelligence drone was reportedly captured by the Chinese. The semi-autonomous drone could act as a screening force for operations and provide an extended sensor net and provide greater tactical awareness. So, So basically you're using the drones as a force multiplier. And then the issue that's raised is, okay, what about controlling the drones? How would you do that? And they say that, well, okay, you can think of military communications satellites that are up there already, but they don't have, apparently, the available capacity to take on an additional role of controlling 
fleets of maritime drones. drones. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the author of this article uh, proposes a possible solution. Every astronomer ground-based here in the, in, in the world's least favorite thing, the Starlink satellites and SpaceX. And they have a constellation now of over 1,600 satellites with 1,000 more planned, and that would be optimal to provide the data necessary to operate the drones. I hate to think that there's going to be even more of those little annoyances that you're trying, when you're trying to see pretty stars, you see twinkles. That's right. Um, but there are some uh, considerations uh, that uh, would have to be addressed before this, this could even be possible. One is that uh, the system would have to be tested to, to validate that the uh, Starlink satellite constellation uh, could successfully be used to control military maritime drones. And the other aspect, and this might even be more <laughs> difficult, is that the system would have to be made secure. Obviously, uh, um, for a military application, the, the security implications are high. Although, you know, I could argue that this uh, Starlink constellation should be military-grade secure already um, because otherwise it's hackable. Uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, I don't know. But it's raised in the article as uh, uh, something that needs to be addressed, the security of the Starlink satellite constellation. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, that if we're putting all these up there, they, they really should be a secure way. Otherwise, all of our data is going to get hacked apart. But, Max, they came to a conclusion. So what was the conclusion? So they talk about the uh, two emerging technologies, the maritime drone vessels and large satellite communication constellations. And they say that th this would be a good solution uh, for the Navy, solving some of its, its issues with aging fleets, lack of capacity, um, creating, as they say, a more nimble, lean, and modern force able to better confront the rising security threats facing the United States in the years and decades to come. Um, so it's, you know, it's, I guess, offered as a potential, uh, you know, way to think about solving some of these issues. It's interesting that um, unmanned surface vessels um, or USVs or autonomous surface vessels start thinking about swarm technology, you know, and having multiple ships or multiple ships and multiple submarines, all of what, you know, all acting together um, could be a force multiplier, much the same way we have loyal wingmen mm -hmm. for the Air Force now. You, the drone ships would be the the tip of the spear to protect the manned ships farther behind. So it is a logical step in the right direction given the technology. It's just a matter of it's a lot easier to do an airplane than it is to do a ship. Yes. Well, we haven't really talked about this company in a while, but evidently um, YouTube leaked out that there's now a Mavic 3. Or that it's coming, anyway. And this YouTuber leaked what we think is the next Mavic drone. And uh, there's uh, some information about what 
they believe that this is going to include. One is improved obstacle detection, and this will be accomplished by using some new wide-angle lenses on the front and rear cameras. And these particular lenses apparently were created in collaboration with Hasselblad. So that's that's kind of interesting. It's not unusual for a consumer-grade company um, like a DJI, like a Sony, to link up with a you know well-known, respected optics company like a Leica or a Hasselblad, and kind of um, use the uh, the reputation of that company in terms of their marketing their product. Sometimes you gotta pay for the nice glass. Yeah. And sometimes the glass, I mean, the glass has the nice name and the glass might be better than the consumer company would have produced on their own, but it's not going to be full-blown high-end optics, even though it's got the name. At least that's my personal opinion. Um, anyway, um, some other information claimed in this is that the main camera has a focal length equivalent to 24 millimeters with an f2.8 aperture which would help boost the uh, video footage up to 5.7K. And then the uh, the Mavic 3's second camera supposedly will support up to seven times optical zoom. Though I must admit the next stat is really impressive, which is images will be stored on one terabyte of internal memory. You know when memory was in megabytes... You know, and now we're talking terabytes without a problem. Yeah, yeah. And then finally, this uh, Mavic 3, quote-unquote, uh, would also have a larger battery with up to 40 minutes of flight time. So that's pretty significant. Um, but, David, we should probably say that, you know, so this is a leak. It's on YouTube. And sometimes those kinds of things are accurate. Sometimes not so much so. I really can't assess the uh, the accuracy of this one, but uh, this is what is being reported anyway. Nothing in this article, it, nothing is beyond what you could expect for a DJI, True. the next a next generation DJI. It's just, it's not definitive yet. When, and when DJI announces it, then it'll be definitive. Well, NASA has tapped Kyoto startup to make maps of wind for drones. NASA wants to map the wind so drones and air taxis will be safer. We were sort of talking about this last week. Mm. There's a Japanese startup, Metro Weather Company, and they make LiDAR sensors. And these sensors can be used to track atmospheric dust in order to measure wind, direction, and speed, uh, which is a uh, pretty neat trick. Uh, and these, the range of these sensors is 11 miles. So that's what Metro Weather, the Japanese startup, is contributing. Um, and the idea is that they're going to use these um, sensors. In fact, True Weather Solutions, uh, which is U.S.-based, is going to use these Metro Weather sensors at a NASA drone testing site. And basically, they intend to show how real-time wind information can help drones choose optimal routes to avoid wind shear and other dangers. In a real application, the sensors would be mounted atop buildings 
four of them could cover all of central Tokyo, which is a major coverage thing, which is kind of impressive. But if you think these are little, they're not. The sensors weigh 267 pounds that are about the size of a coffee table. So clearly they're not being flown on the drone. <laughs> and when I started with this uh, article, that's what I kind of assumed, that the, the LiDAR would be on the drones. But uh, with that size and weight, um, clearly they, uh, yeah, they're not. All this is under NASA's Small Business Innovation Research Grant Program. You know, as we get, I'll say, closer and closer to uh, a future reality where there's urban air mobility and all of this stuff going on, um, there really is a lot of work that needs to be done to get to that point. And this is just an example of, of another area. But, you know, I hadn't really thought about a lot, um, you know, wind in an urban environment and being able to uh, measure that and use that information uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, controlling these uh, these vehicles, these aircraft uh, in that environment. So another, another kind of key piece to the puzzle, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're so used to thinking about weather in aviation, you know, it's such an important factor. But weather in between the canyons of buildings is a completely different ball game. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, and again, NASA is trying to foster innovation, you know, and that's why these grants are out there. So good for them. How about Carbonics partners with Robotic Skies for advanced global field support? This was from HIN News. And Robotic Skies provides maintenance, inspection, and repair services for the commercial drone industry. We've talked about them before. They have over 230 service centers in 50 countries. Yeah, pretty extensive footprint. And then as for uh, Carbonics, it's an Australian company. Um, they have uh, data capture UAVs. The applications are for long-range and large-area aerial surveillance. And um, these, um, these aircraft, their drones, feature technically advanced ISR, LIDAR, and photogrammetry systems. And so the two companies are partnering to provide an international field support program for customers who operate the Carbonics UAVs. So Brad Hayden, who is the Robotics Skies founder, said, quote, We are thrilled to work with Carbonics and their partner specializing in UAV maintenance and repair. We aim to make it easy for the manufacturers of high-performance commercial UAVs like Carbonics to seamlessly incorporate robotic skies into existing workflows and efficiently build up their customer support infrastructure on a global scale. So Carbonics has a couple of different styles of drones. Yeah, they have two drones. They have the Volante, um, which is a fixed-wing UAV, one-kilogram payload, two-hour flight time. Uh, wingspan is uh, just under uh, 3,600 millimeters, and uh, it can cover an area of 100 hectares, uh, which is, I had to look it up because I have no uh, feel for that unit of measures. That's 2,471 acres. That's the Volante. They also have the Domani drone, which is larger instead of the one kilogram payload of the Volante. This has a five kilogram payload 
and a 10-hour flight time. So this is a, a much larger drone with a higher, higher capacity. Um, so I think it's, it, it's interesting, the sort of the symbiotic relationship uh, between these two companies and you know, how they're planning to work together to kind of provide full service, both the, uh, the, the drone service from uh, Carbonics and then the maintenance and repair service from Robotic Skies. I mean, they complement each other pretty well. Yep. So the next story is near and dear to my heart because it's a history story. It really is. Um, and I know we've talked a lot about drones, but I grew up knowing about drones and specifically combat drones. And we've got a new story, new book out called Drone War Vietnam, which, and this was an article in the Daily Beast, and how drones played a very vital role in the air-to-air combat and combat in the Vietnam era. Yeah, it's kind of like the forgotten story in some respects. I mean, David, because of, uh, you know, your your passion for aviation, you're aware of um, some of these things. But I think more broadly, people just don't have, you know, any idea. And uh, during the Vietnam War, drones played a significant role. They, they performed target spotting for bombers and radar jamming and propaganda leaflet dropping and things like that. Uh, but the the article, which I, as I recall, is written by the author of this book, Drone War Vietnam, talks a lot about the Ryan Aeronautical Model 147 Lightning Bug uh, drone which um, I, I guess uh, performed a lot of missions in Vietnam. Yeah, now, partly because of the next statement is why I know a lot about drones, and that is they were launched from DC-130s, which stood for Drone C-130, which were the drone carriers. They navigated along pre-point checkpoints um, using video cameras, at the end of the mission, they popped a parachute and floated towards the ground, and either a helicopter or another C-130 or C-119 could scoop it up via the air as it was dangling from its parachute. And this is one of those stats that I don't think people would realize, but we flew 1,106 Model 147s on 3,435 operational missions in the 11 years between 64 and 75. Now, these were not very sophisticated devices, right, David? No, but the, the Ryan Firebee and Lightning Bug were not sophisticated, but they were very effective drones. Hmm. I guess at, at one point, um, the North Vietnamese figured out how to intercept the operators, the drone operators' radio signals, and then they use that to, uh, as the author says, set aerial ambushes for drones in manned warplanes. So that required a little bit of, I guess, encryption or something to make those communications more secure. Yeah, I mean, there was a learning curve. I mean, we were ahead of the technology, but the North Vietnamese were um, talented when it came to communications. And of course, um, if you know anything about the SR-71, there was a baby SR-71 called the D-21, which originally was supposed to be launched off the back of a CIA A-12, but um, that failed 
so they were launched from B-52s and C-130s, and they flew over Vietnam and into China. So as baby little SR-71s, but they're very, they're, the D-21 drone is pretty famous for um, its attributes and its speed, etc. cetera. But, um, but yeah, there, there was a very large drone war in Vietnam, you know, and then all of that gave way to what was supposed to be a superior technology, which was satellites. Hmm. Yeah, and so after the, the war, there was kind of a period where military drones just didn't see much activity in favor of, like you say, David, satellites, spy satellites. But now we've kind of come around back to uh, to drones, things like the Predator and and others. So it's it's kind of interesting how this uh, how these things go in in cycles. But I tell you, you know, it. I'm I'm not the same uh, military enthusiast. Let's say that, you know, I know you are David, and and others are. But just reading this article, I don't know. It just really got me interested in in this, and you know, learning about this aspect of uh, you know unmanned aviation that I, I really wasn't aware of. So we'll have a link in the show notes to the to the book if you'd like to check it out. And um, maybe learn some interesting history. And and what's old is always new again. So it, yeah. it just always goes around. Sometimes it really bites <laughs> when you fly your drone a little close to what you're trying to observe. And this is the video of the week. It's an alligator eating a drone that flew a little too close. Now... We've had lots of animals attacking drones over the years of this podcast. We've had bears, we've had eagles, we've had hawks, we've had bucks and and antlers. And well, now we can add the reptilian family to it because this is a video of an alligator eating a poorly flown drone. You're right. Um, This was apparently an inexperienced drone operator. I think they might have said this was like the second the second flight, and he's flying his drone really, really close to the alligator. And I think there's a quote from the uh, this uh, drone pilot saying that, you know, they, they thought their obstacle avoidance capabilities of the drone would keep it from getting too close to the alligator, uh, which again speaks to the inexperience of this particular operator. So the alligator, you know, thrusts upward, snaps open its mouth, grabs the, the drone. And then what happens next is is really kind of concerning because apparently the LiPo batteries decided that um, they were not happy and, and they started combusting. And you can see all this smoke coming out of the alligator's mouth, which it's, you know, I mean, that can't be healthy for an alligator or anything else. Some of the, well, not some of the comments, most of the comments under this particular uh, YouTube post of the video are are very, very critical and, you know, mention that whoever did this should be fined or in jail. Another popular kind of comment was, this is why there are so many drone rules, you know, because people do stupid things like this. Uh, th- there were a few kind of wisecracks mixed in with the comments, which are, well, they'd be amusing you know, if this alligator wasn't injured by this little 
fiasco. But by and large, the comments are uh, very, very critical of what's happened here. And and rightfully so. I mean, we are making a little jest of it, but you need to learn to fly properly. And this is another one of those. We should add it to the your grounded files. But yes. it definitely, it definitely is unique for video of the week. Yeah, it really is. All right. We want to thank you for listening to episode 381 of the UAV Digest. We're at the UAVdigest.com. And you'll find show notes for this and every episode there. But if you want to go straight to the show notes for this episode, then you can just go to the UAVdigest.com slash 381. And, of course, you can join us each week on our Slack listener team, and you do that by sending us an email to feedback at the UAVdigest.com, as well as send us some stories or videos or something that if you want Max and I to talk about, we always love interactions with our listeners. Um, you can always find us on social media, on the various places, um, as well as LinkedIn. Um, so I think with that, I'm going to say this is David. We're in dry land here in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And this is Max in pretty soggy Connecticut. Goodbye until next time. And thanks for listening.